This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Will Johnson. The show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. Town where you could go out anywhere, anytime, day or night, and feel safe until this happened. And we had no answers of who did this, so we were all still very afraid. It makes you question everyone around you. Mama, I know what I did. I killed Joyce McLean. What he told the officers is that she kicked me and I hit her with the insulator. I knew it was wrong. I think there's always been kind of some skepticism, I guess, around who actually did it um, and whether or not Fournier was just the easiest guy to kind of pin in the end. Whether he's convicted or not, there still remains great doubt, and uh, doubts will linger about this case, regardless of what happens. State police returned to East Millinocky today to conduct another search where Joyce McLean was murdered 35 years ago. The search was centered along power lines near Skank High School in the same area where state police searched on October 1st. No details have been released on what detectives were looking for or whether anything was found. Searchers spent several hours today... For longtime residents of the rural town of East Millinocket in central Maine, that news back in November of 2015 came as a surprise. It was an update on a case many assumed would never be solved. Back in August of 1980, the disappearance of a teenage girl had captured everyone's attention. It was the talk of the town because this is East Millinocket. It's it's an old mill town, very, very, very small. Um, and everybody started talking as soon as, as she didn't come home. This is Samantha York, a reporter with News Center Maine in Portland, Maine. She's learned about the case of Joyce McLean over the years, a 16-year-old girl who went for a jog back on Friday, August 8th, 1980. Joyce was getting ready for the upcoming soccer season. What we what we did learn about her was that the night that she went missing, she had told her mom that she was just going to go for a jog. She'd be coming back later. Um, and then she never came home. If I remember correctly, it wasn't like her to be away as long as she was. Um, she was pretty close to her mom, pretty close to her sister. Um, and it just, it wasn't like her to to, to just, to just kind of disappear. It wasn't long before the teenager's body was found. It was just two days later, found behind her high school along a row of power lines. It was brutal. It was brutal. She was found, I believe she just had her shoes and socks on. So she was found naked. Her hands were tied behind her back. She had bruising everywhere. Um, it, it was a pretty horrific scene. Police determined that her cause of death was blunt force trauma to her head. So she died from a blunt injury to the head. And I believe investigators pointed to uh, what's called an insulator, which is a piece of the the power lines that were where she was found near. Um, So it was a big enough object that they would they would have been able to hit her with it. And it didn't take long for investigators to focus on a man named Philip Scott Fournier. He was questioned in the weeks after McLean's murder. Fournier claimed his memory of the night was murky, perhaps because he'd been drinking, and then there was another factor that complicated the investigation and Fournier's memory of that night. One of the interesting things about 
Fournier, though, is that he ended up getting into a major car accident, I believe, the night that she went missing. So he was actually in a coma for eight days after all of this was happening. So investigators couldn't even talk to him until he came to. In his initial interviews with police after Joyce's murder, after Fournier came out of his coma, he said he didn't know Joyce McLean. But the following year in 1981, Fournier told police that he thought Joyce was cute and had a nice smile. Fournier told police he was drunk and had a very spotty memory of that night. He told police, quote, all I remember is tripping over and my hand felt her arm. It was cold. I don't remember anything after that. As the years went by, he'd allegedly confessed to his pastor, his mother, and a co-worker. But in light of the car accident and his brain injury and his changing story that didn't match up with the crime scene, they never had enough to make an arrest. So there was there was a confession, but with the coma and then people saying there were like memory issues here and there, his story changed so many different times that it was hard for investigators to kind of pinpoint him and arrest him on the spot. It's not like he disappeared from the suspect list. Police just didn't have enough to get him. And over the years, even without any updates from police on the investigation and without an arrest, Joyce's mother continued to hold on to hope, keeping a flame lit for Joyce through the decades. So Pam, she is such a sweetheart. So she she had been lighting a candle and it had been sitting in her window basically every single night that her daughter had been missing. Um, and she, I ended up becoming friends with her on Facebook. So I was able to see her posts as well. And I mean, it was like every single day she was sharing something about her daughter. Um, because I mean, this was her baby that, was gone and she had so many questions and again coming from a small town people talk a lot you know and so i'm sure over the years she had heard so many different things didn't know what to believe and now all of a sudden her daughter was getting a shot at justice um and so i remember her being she was really really emotional she was really really tired but I know that she was she was still holding on to hope. Like she always knew that her daughter would get justice. It was just a matter of how long it would take for it to happen. And then came that search in the fall of 2015, 35 years after Joyce's body was found. It was something, a sign that investigators were still digging, keeping the case alive. And then finally in March of 2016, the news came in. State police announced that they've made an arrest in this case, and the man they've arrested is 55-year-old Philip Scott Fournier. State police Colonel Richard Williams made that announcement about 4 o'clock this afternoon at a press conference here at the Main State Police Barracks in Bangor. He credited the Main State Police Major Crimes Unit and generations of state police detectives for getting the evidence to make an arrest. He said there was no one piece of evidence that led to today's charges, but rather the accumulation of evidence over the years. And he said today he's glad to be able to bring this case to a close for the East Millinocket community, but more importantly to Joyce McLean's mother, Pam McLean, who's been tirelessly fighting for decades for justice for her daughter. Her family just, I think her family was shocked when it happened because it had been so long. But I can tell you from my experience, I have talked to Pam McLean myself. 
uh, not recently, but in the past, and she has been living a nightmare for the last 35 and a half years, as have many people in that greater East Millinocket region. I think you're going to find there's a lot of relief in the community that this has finally come to a conclusion and people can move on with their lives. I'm just awestruck. When, when he said, we're going to make an arrest today, That's my reaction, nothing, and I'm a talker. So I was speechless, and I'm still not quite sure it hasn't sunk in yet. I don't hate, I'm for justice. And if somebody kills, rapes, beats a baby, I think justice should be brought on earth if they're living. And if not, then God will take care of the rest. Now, state police released this affidavit just before the press conference. A lot of it detailing old interviews, old witness statements about people putting Fournier behind Skank High School drinking. Some of it are his statements to police. They say he said at some points he admitted to doing it. Other points he said it was someone else. And at other points he said he was too drunk to remember anything. Now, he is in custody at the Penobscot County Jail, likely to be... I'm remembering that he also, over the years, had worked for different places and every now and then would kind of let it slip, like, Oh, did you ever, you know, you ever hear about that Joyce McLean girl? Like, I I was the one that did it. According to the arrest affidavit, several witnesses had seen Fournier drunk and in the area of the high school August 8th, 1980, the day McLean was killed. One witness said they saw Fournier with a friend, Leroy Spearin, outside the school. When the witness returned less than an hour later, Spearin was alone and looked, quote, white as a ghost. Spearin said he didn't know where Fournier was when the witness asked. One witness said he saw Fournier running out from behind the school where McLean's body was eventually found at around 10 o'clock that night. When he was arrested, Fournier was 55 years old, making him just 19 years old in 1980 at the time of the murder. And when he was arrested, he'd already spent time in prison. He is a convicted sex offender who has already spent six and a half years in prison, most recently getting out just a year ago. 35 and a half years in the making, this case is the second longest homicide investigation state police have conducted that has resulted in an arrest. Fournier had been interviewed already by authorities multiple times throughout that 35-year investigation, but... Officials say that the renewed efforts that followed that re-examination resulted in an arrest warrant for Fournier just last Friday. In January 2018, Fournier's case finally went to trial. Fournier waived his right to a jury trial, so a judge would ultimately decide his fate. Joyce McLean was just 16 years old when she was brutally murdered in East Millinocket. Now, 37 years later, her alleged killer is finally in court. His murder trial began this morning in Bangor. New Center Samantha York was in the courtroom and is here now. To it was a pretty intense trial. One, because of the people who were there, and then two, because of the things that they were showing. Because again, this was this was a really brutal murder. And they didn't hold back with sharing any of the evidence at all. It, it was really, it was a really tough trial. A really tough trial because her classmates were there. Her family was there. Her friends was there. Like, everybody who wanted answers was in that courtroom. There would be no DNA evidence linking Fournier to the crime scene, but prosecutors believed those initial confessions, along with Fournier's specific knowledge of never-released details, would be enough to convict him. The defense maintained that the car accident and Fournier's brain injury deeply affected his memory. Defense attorney Jeff Silverstein believes his client, the man accused of brutally murdering 16-year-old Joyce McLean back in 1980, 
is innocent. What the state has done is forced a round peg into a square hole. Prosecutors say it's the defense that is leaving crucial details out of its case, including Fournier knowing what the possible murder weapon was and that McLean was menstruating the night she was murdered. The state says the lack of forensic evidence doesn't mean he wasn't there. The lack of spatter doesn't change what this defendant told his mother. Mama, I know what I did. I killed Joyce McLean. What he told the officers is that she kicked me and I hit her with the insulator. I knew it was wrong. Samantha York was in the courtroom as both sides presented their arguments and witnesses took the stand. After almost four decades, McLean's friends and family are ready for justice. I spoke to several people in the courtroom today who say they vividly remember the night that she went missing. Some of McLean's closest friends came as far as places from as North Carolina. They plan to stay here until the trial ends. Several people took the stand today, including McLean's sister and father, as well as a man who was possibly the last person to see her alive. Many said they saw Joyce McLean and Fournier in the hours leading up to her murder, but never together and never behind the school, which is where McLean's body was found. And I remember one of the hardest pieces to kind of wrap my head around, and I think for others to wrap their head around too, was that the mom, Pam, her mom actually took the stand, I believe on the first day. And then after that, the, um, I think it was the defense had said, oh, well, we might want to call her back as a witness. So she had to, she couldn't be a part of the entire trial. She had to be outside of the, the courtroom the entire time. Um, and I just remember she was devastated because she wanted to be in that room. And I don't know I mean, they never called her back. It wasn't like she ever took the stand again. So I don't know if that was just like some tactic on their end to like keep her out of the room so people who were on the stand weren't, you know, swayed differently by seeing her there. Now, Fournier's defense attorney asked each witness if they felt police pressured them when they were first interviewed years ago, or if they felt the questions they were asked gave away pertinent information about the crime. One witness, who was a teenager at the time, said yes, causing the defense to raise the issue of whether the police tactics used at the time were ethical. At one point, retired police detective Ronald Graves testified recalling one of Fournier's earlier confessions. Graves says when Philip Scott Fournier confessed to him in 1981, he said he was with a group of three three guys who, quote, had sex or felt her up. He also admitted to picking up a ceramic insulator from the nearby power line and hitting McLean over the head with it, saying he, quote, knew he shouldn't have done it, but somebody said she deserved it. Now, Detective Graves said they didn't hold him after hearing this because the story didn't match up with the crime scene. And right before court went into recess this evening, prosecutors called Sammy Powers to the stand. Now, Powers is Fournier's stepbrother and a key witness. He recalls his brother had a crush on Joyce. And according to prosecutors, Powers heard his brother talking in his sleep, saying things about McLean after her death. Fournier's pastor, Vinyl Thomas, also testified. Thomas said Fournier called him early in the morning in May of 1981, the year after McLean's murder, asking to speak to him. When Fournier arrived, Fournier told him, I murdered Joyce McLean. But Thomas said he didn't believe him. So in order to prove what he was saying, they called Fournier's mother and stepfather, Anita and Wayne Powers, to the house. And in front of his mother, Fournier said, Mama, I murdered Joyce McLean. 
I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Another witness took the stand and stated that Fournier told him he was still a free man because he'd, quote, beat all the police interviews. We'd also learned that the DNA evidence collected at the scene wasn't a match for Fournier. There was DNA found, but they couldn't, and there were two different names that got thrown out in the trial that they were like, well, maybe it was this person, maybe it was that person. Um, Because, yeah, they didn't have anything specifically linking him to the crime scene. And if I remember correctly, too, the object that they say was used um, for the blunt force trauma, I don't think there was any blood on it or anything. So people were kind of like, how how was this a murder weapon if there isn't any evidence on it? Three hairs along with fingerprints were sent to be tested for DNA. The only profile match that came back was for Joyce herself. The other six possible suspects, including Fournier and others who were at a party together the night McLean was killed, could not be linked to the crime. So who do they belong to? The Maine State Police Crimes Lab employee did not say, but they did say the hairs do not belong to the same individual. They showed separate profiles. In addition to that forensic evidence, the crime lab employees went over what was on McLean's clothing, which included blood, but semen was not present. Now, we also heard from a retired detective who was part of Fournier's initial questioning back in 1981. He says he spoke to Fournier for four hours and over the course of questioning got inconsistent answers. Fournier first denied being a part of the crime, but later said he knows he was the one who hit McLean with the insulator. He says he hit her once in the face, which does match up with the bruising investigators testified to last week. Now, the detective also said at one point he asked Fournier to tell the complete truth, but Fournier's response was that he wasn't ready and that perhaps sometime in the future he would be. My sense was that as as much as the family was thankful that justice was here, it felt to me like there were still doubts and there were still questions. I got very close with her uncle because I knew that if I was going to be able to follow this, that I needed guidance from the family a little bit on what what had happened and what their thoughts were on everything. And... I remember asking the uncle, you know, is this the guy? And he was like, maybe. State is rested, but it is not clear what the exact murder weapon was. And after testimony from one detective today, clear if there was actually any new evidence that led to Fournier's arrest, raising this question by his defense. If investigators really thought Fournier was responsible, why did it take so long for the arrest? Pointing out that Fournier had been interviewed over 20 times between 1980 and his arrest in 2016, and that even after admitting he hit McLean in the face with the glass insulator, he still wasn't arrested. The state also provided an audio recording between the defendant and his sister last year while he was being held in the jail. The two were talking about whether or not his mother, Anita Powers, would end up testifying during his trial. Fournier saying at one point Powers needed to, quote, have her head screwed on straight when she testifies and that she, quote, only gets one chance. When the defense called witnesses to the stand, we'd hear from another retired detective. Joe Zamboni, in fact, investigated the Joyce McLean case the longest taking over the investigation in 1985. He testified that he thought it was another man who killed Joyce McLean. 
Emory says he thought the person behind the murder was a man named Joe Albert. He says he thought that because of where McLean's clothes were found, which was in a rock wall. Albert was in prison for murder at the time, and he left his victim's clothes in a rock wall as well. So that detail stuck out to him. He also testified that he never felt Fournier's interviews ever got him anywhere. A lot of the time, the stories that Fournier would tell didn't match up and that not much progress was made. When he retired in 2004, he told police and the, and the AG's office, he felt Albert was the right guy. The defense also called a neuropsychologist to the stand. He testified that Fournier's memory wasn't credible due to the nature of the brain injury he sustained in that car accident the same night as the murder. It wasn't clear if Fournier himself would take the stand, but as the defense witness list came to an end, he decided not to testify on his own behalf. The defense's last witness was a man named Louis Mishu. Mishu was not able to testify for himself, so a transcript was read. It stated he saw another suspect yell at McLean shortly before she was murdered, even saying, quote, I will kill you. The defense also recalled the detective who got the case to trial, focusing this time on the men's underwear that was found close to the scene. Then the defense rested. We are now waiting for the judge's decision in one of Maine's oldest cold cases to actually go to trial. Closing arguments were presented today in Philip Fournier. After 11 days of testimony, the decision now rested in the hands of the judge. Whether he's convicted or not, there still remains great doubt and uh, doubts will linger about this case, regardless of what happens. After two weeks of deliberation, the verdict came down. This morning, a judge found Philip Scott Fournier guilty of murdering McLean back in 1980. This is the day McLean's family and friends waited 37 years for. 37 years to finally hear this. The state has proven the defendant's guilt beyond reasonable doubt. The court finds the defendant guilty. A guilty sentence for Philip Scott Fournier, followed by cries of relief and celebration. It was... I mean, it was a great moment for the family. I remember everybody crying. You could hear them. You know, it was very vocal <laughs> as soon as everything happened. Um, and it was just like this huge sigh of relief that, you know, finally Joyce had justice. You'll never see a happier mother than this one is right here, right now. This is, this is an important case for the family and the community. Fournier was sentenced to 45 years in prison, and despite appeals, he remains behind bars at the Maine State Prison. The Maine Supreme Court has denied the appeal of one convicted murderer and is being asked to hear the appeal of another. Philip Scott Fournier was convicted last year of the murder of Joyce McLean in East Millinocket nearly 40 years ago. He and his attorney say the jury should not have heard about his confessing to the crime to his pastor and others. But the court said entering those confessions into evidence did not violate Fournier's right to religious privilege, so his appeal has been denied. Maine is known for having cold cases that don't seem to get solved. So to be able to have one that does go to trial and does come out with a, a guilty conviction, that was huge. Hey, True Crime Chronicles listeners, Reed Redmond here to close out this episode with Will Johnson. Will, one of the big challenges early on in this investigation that we heard about is this claim from Philip Scott Fournier that he couldn't remember the night of August 8th, 1980, the night that Joyce McLean was killed. He said he'd been drinking and then he got into this big car crash. Is there anything else you can tell us about that crash? 
Yeah, there's actually a, a, a bit more background to that part of the story. What we know is that police say Fournier stole and crashed an oil truck the night that Joyce McLean was murdered. So he was in this accident, as we mentioned in the episode, but there, there was, you know, more to it that he stole this truck. And then that is the accident that then left him in a coma for eight days and kept police waiting until he, he woke up and they were able to interview him finally. So then decades went by before there was an arrest in this case. And talking about this story, now that there's been a conviction from the outside looking in, we kind of get to jump right from this flurry of activity in the early days of the investigation to hey, all of a sudden, 35 years later, we have some answers. But for those involved, that's this huge window of time where they're dealing with this every day. The quote that stuck out to me from Maine State Police Colonel Richard Williams was when he said that Joyce's mother, Pam McLean, and others in the community were, in his words, living a nightmare for those 35 years. And then we also get to this question of what changed during those 35 years? Was there new evidence that came up that led to this arrest? Do we have any other insight into what the investigation looked like during that decades-long window of time? What exactly investigators were doing to try to find Joyce McLean's killer? My understanding is that really, you know, over a long period of time, they did bring Fournier in repeatedly over the years. I don't have all the specific years and dates, but I, I think it's mentioned along the way that, you know, over a dozen times or more that he was brought in and questioned. His story kept changing. I think, again, one reason they did not arrest him was that even at the very beginning, his his story to them didn't match the crime scene. And they were just unable to put together enough pieces to make an arrest. But again, getting back to your question, Certainly interviews with Fournier over the years, and as we get closer to, as we got closer to an arrest, they were talking to, uh, you know, a lot of the witnesses and a lot of the people that were brought in and testified during the trial. I will add one interesting detail on this story is that community members in East Millinocket pooled their money together in 2008 to have Joyce McLean's body exhumed. And at the time, they were still hoping to find any shred of DNA evidence that could be linked to her killer, as we know from... This episode, that was never found, at least DNA that could be linked back to, uh, to, to Fournier, even though he was eventually convicted of this murder. Another element of this case when it goes to trial is that there's no jury. Fournier waived his right to a jury trial, so it was a judge who decided Fournier was guilty. That means we'll never know what a jury might have made of his round peg in a square hole defense that we heard about. And a piece of that was this surprising testimony from a retired detective who said that he believed, as someone who investigated this case, that they got the wrong guy. Can you tell us anything more about that testimony? Right. That was Joe Zamboni who took over this investigation and was, in fact, the detective who was in charge of the investigation the longest. And, Reed, I have to say, I can't think of many other cases that we've covered on this show or even our, our daily show uh, where, you know, you hear about a detective coming in who was that close to a case and really just said he thought it was somebody else, uh, you know, and he had a, a, the name of that individual. We talked about in the episode uh, that 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 person uh, that, that he thought did this murder, that committed this crime, had in fact been convicted of another murder where canine officer found the victim's clothes in a nearby rock wall. Well, as we mentioned, Joyce McLean's clothes were found in a similar rock wall. Zamboni actually interviewed the, this other suspect 
in prison and came out of that interview still thinking that it might have been him. All right. Thank you, Will. And thanks as well to Samantha York with New Center, Maine for bringing us this story. And thanks for listening to True Crime Chronicles. We also want to mention we have a brand new show from Vault Studios. It's called Intent, the Tex McIver case. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'll be back next week with a new case and a new story.